trying to think of like what the first word I should say is. <laughs> we're okay. we, we're leaving all of this in. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Hey everybody, welcome to. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Okay. Hey, Daniel. Hey, where's Barry? Oh, there you are, Barry. Welcome to We're Not Here to Watch Friends, the podcast about Matthew Perry's career, except for, of course, the television show Friends. This week, we're covering Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, episode three, titled The Focus Group. I'm Daniel. Hey, and I'm Brandon. Hi, Brandon. How you doing, man? Good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So we are recording this on February 16th, which is like a little less than two weeks when this episode will actually come out. So everything I'm about to say is going to be extremely dated. But uh, how was your Super Bowl? My Super Bowl? It was good, except I will say the one issue I had was there was not a single commercial that featured Matthew Perry in it. The Scrubs guys were in a commercial. So it seems like making a Super Bowl commercial where the whole joke is, oh, look, Matthew Perry is in this commercial. Like, it seems like a no-brainer, you know? Here's my pitch. You have every commercial scripted the exact same way, but you put Matthew Perry in all the nostalgic ones. So we have the Cable Guy one with Jim Carrey, except it's Matthew Perry playing the Cable Guy. And then you have the Scrubs one, except you have Matthew Perry playing JD. And then Donald Faison can still be Turk. (laughs) Matthew Perry in blackface. Oh, God. (laughs) Was there another one? The Austin Powers one, except Matthew Perry plays... Probably both Dr. Evil and Seth Green. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I don't remember his name in that movie or any names. He's Dr. Evil's kid, right? It's like Brian or something. Yeah, he's like Brian Evil. Brian Evil. That's a good name. And then you have... Yeah, I can't think of any other commercials. No, I I mean, I honestly, like, I was drinking pretty heavily throughout the game, so I don't really remember a lot of the commercials. Uh, But the game was fun. It was a good time. My only issue with the game was Matthew Perry was not on the field. Yeah, he wasn't there either. He, he's got crazy money. Go buy a Super Bowl ticket, Matthew Perry. I wonder if he watches football and lives in L.A. Right, we'll find out when we read his biography that's coming out. Can't wait. I hope he puts his full address in it. <laughs> Good God. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about before we got into the meat of this episode, which which is a good one. I'm, I'm excited to talk to you about this episode of Studio you see on the Sunset Strip. There's a lot of meat in this episode. Like, I feel like I met Adele in the morning. Yeah. Oh, man. Jesus. That joke sucked. <laughs> but uh, in, in the first episode, which, again, dating this episode instantly, came out yesterday, uh, we had a great riff about how uh, shows and, t- and movies should be named something colon the same thing, you know. Uh, so James Bond colon No Time to Die. The Justice League colon Dawn of Justice. And then I found out that the new Lord of the Rings that's going to be on Amazon Prime is called The Lord of the Rings colon The Rings of Power. They took our idea. My theory is that they listened to it and then they were like, oh, we already have this Lord of the Rings thing in production. Let's go ahead and just quickly add the colon. And a lot of people will be like, well, the name has been that for a while, but I didn't notice it until today. So that means it hasn't existed until today it's a mandela effect for anyone who says the name existed before today yeah no lie. Yeah, yeah 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 no like it's a lie so i will say i think if you went and asked a thousand people on the street what the name of the lord of the rains amazon show is they would have probably just said i don't know they probably just fucking calling it lord of the rains again yeah like, i would i would say 900 of them would say amazon's doing a lord of the rings thing and then the other hundred would be like it's probably just called lord of the rings because like who the fuck cares that amazon prime is making a lord of the Rings? peter jackson's not involved like i'm not super interested in it he probably doesn't know the name of the show yeah the problem is you also would run into at least one person who says is this on is this jaywalking am i on jay leno show <laughs> it's crazy that he's still making jaywalking even though he isn't on tv anymore that would be a good bit i feel like snl should steal this idea from us 
There's, it'd, be, it'd be a fun bit to have, like, Jay Leno roam the streets and just have, like, a fake microphone going No around. camera crew, though. He's just, like, doing it. Just yeah. doing it for the love of the game, you know? We know Jay Leno loves cars. He probably loves cans. And by cans, I'm talking about the headphones you put on your head when you have a microphone. <laughs> yep, I bet that that's true, Daniel. <laughs> you want to get into this episode? <laughs> So going back to the episode, the episode, of course, is called The Focus Group, which just to recap for those of you who are jumping in on this episode, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, a show starring Matthew Perry, has him and Bradley Whitford as people who used to work for a Saturday Night Live type sketch show and got either fired or basically left begrudgingly and then got rehired once there was a big mishap with like the other current director. Uh, so they basically have to come in, go back to their old roots, and take over an, basically what is SNL, except in this fictional world. It's called Studio 60 on Sunset Strip. The core of this episode is about the idea of a focus group, which is, you know, people who are from all over, I guess, basically a city. In this case, they basically imply it's all L.A., even though the guy they have speak has like a southern accent. They, they don't imply it. They outright say that it's an L.A. only focus group. All of them are unemployed actors and they're unemployed for a reason. And I feel like that, I feel like that came after they decided to have the guy in the focus group who speaks have a southern accent. Well, people in L.A. have southern accent, you know, like then he could have grew up in Texas and then he's like, I want to be a movie star and then move to L.A. I wonder if in the Studio 60 universe, this guy in like 10 years was the star of a popular movie series series uh sure <laughs> i mean you always hear stories about how a massive actor started off in a focus group 10 years before do you do you always hear those stories will smith dwayne the rock johnson jack black <laughs> okay so one thing i want to point out is the first scene they're showing the focus group we have amanda pete and steven weber in the other room who are the two main execs who oversee Matthew Perry and Bradley Whitford's work on the show. They're head of the networks, basically. And Amanda Peet's just shitting on the focus group the entire time. I think I hate Jordan, Amanda Peet's character. It it doesn't make sense for her to be this person in power in the network who then also just cares about this one... Like, obviously they need her to care about the show, So, but it doesn't make sense that she's, like, not an antagonist to the show, but she's not really helpful either. It just feels like they haven't figured out what to do with her yet, you know? She's very pro-Studio 60, and so she butt heads with Jack and stuff. But they could have just had Matt and Danny butt heads with Jack. She's just sort of like a middle person in between the conflict that doesn't really serve any purpose yet. I'm wondering if there's something they're building up to, but it doesn't really make any sense. I, I'm going to give them a benefit of doubt here, but I will say, not to go ahead of ourselves, but at the very end of the episode, the last thing that I want to say uh, Danny says to her is, You look like them. But you talk like us. Yeah. Like, this is a note that Aaron Sorkin wrote in the script storyboard or something. He's like, Jordan, like, looks like the executives, but she talks like the people on the ground kind of thing. Yeah. Which, um, that sucks. I hated that line. I thought that was very stupid. And I'm going to be saying that a lot this episode. So I just want to kind of put this out here, which is like my philosophy on doing this podcast and how I wanted to like approach Studio 60 is I wanted to like be like, you know what? It got canceled after one season. People talk about it a lot. They make fun of it a lot. I want to come in with like a positive mind and try to find things I like about the show. And that was very difficult to do in this episode there was a lot to not like (laughs) so i have a different take than you on this episode it definitely has a lot of faults but there's a lot of stuff that i actually did enjoy on this episode that we'll get into later i'm sure yeah it's not irredeemable but but there was just like a lot of this episode where i'm just like oh this is what everyone's talking about when they talk about how like weird and bad the show is because the first two episodes i thought were pretty good like interesting and like they were silly and like not as good as the show thought it was but this is the first episode and it's only the third but it is the first episode where i'm like oh this is regular bad you know one thing i want to note on this focus group scene before we move on from it Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We, we kind of got off track. Let's let's get back on talking about the specifics. Wait, we got off track on this podcast? I hope we never do that again. <laughs> you and me? That's never going to happen. I don't think we ever get off track usually. No, not at all. There was, I don't know if you caught this. I caught this only on like a rewatch of the episode was that 
in the background of like the actual focus groups, like, you know, they're like in an audience and what looks like a theater watching the episode. And there's a bunch of really dumb movie posters in the background of what they're like the room they're in, which I was looking at. And I was like, I wonder these have to be fake movies. I wonder how much time they spent to come up with these. And I can read you some of the titles of those movies. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I did not catch this, so I'm excited. So uh, one of the movies was called The Isolationist, which I don't even know what that could possibly be about. It sounds like a Robert Redford movie where he's like by himself, maybe. I don't yeah. know. It's a it's a it's a biopic about George Washington, specifically his foreign policy. That would actually probably make more sense in Aaron Sorkin's world. Um, Aaron Sorkin definitely would do that. And then he would say, oh, if you don't understand that that's what this is relating to, then you're not smart enough to get it. Uh, we should come back to that because that's an important part of this episode. It's an important part also of this scene, but other movie posters included Ventura Freeway, which had a tagline that said, choose your friends wisely. I assumed it was like a Coen Brothers parody, maybe, because it like the movie poster itself looks like a fun road trip with thriller elements to it, which to me was like raising Arizona or sure. a no country for old men, but not as dark kind of thing. Yeah. The movie called Tacoma six. Okay, sure. You know, nothing really about it. That looked like it was probably like a fast and the furious type movie. I'm assuming just, you know, the car Tacoma or whatever. And then a movie called empowered, which is a boxing movie based on the poster. It's just, a guy with a like you just see a guy's arm and then it goes down to his hand which is a boxing glove oh oh okay and then the last movie was i think it was just called something beyond i'm not sure if i can make the first word out but the poster for that movie looked a lot like the star trek posters so i'm assuming it was probably a parody of star trek but at the same time star trek beyond the movie that was like the third movie in that franchise that didn't come out until 10 years after this movie poster so do we think that Justin Lin and Simon Pegg watched this episode and decided to name the movie Beyond in order to pay homage to this episode? Well, you know, Occam's Razor, uh, of course, that's exactly what happened. Uh, <laughs> they probably did watch this show, right? Like, Do we think Simon Pegg watched this show? Was he living in the United States in 2006? Does he live in the United States now? I don't know. Maybe his biography will tell us his address. <laughs> Hot Fuzz was probably in post-production. Okay. So yeah, he had some downtime. He was between he was between things. Maybe he's filming it though. Do actors respect Aaron Sorkin? Like, is it like a oh, we have to watch this show because we want to be in his next thing, so we watch it? Like in 2006, probably. I don't think they probably care now. He's doing like direct to Netflix shit now, but like back then, you would watch things of people you wanted to work with. So then, when you met them, you could be like, oh, I liked you in this. We should work together. Well, to be fair, um, his most recent direct to Amazon movie, being the Ricardo got multiple nominations at the oh, Oscars. that's true. Yeah, I just keep thinking about the trial of the Chicago 7 and how bad it was. Well, uh, I didn't love being the Ricardos, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> it also wasn't good, but, you know, it, it got nominated for awards. I don't think I brought... I didn't bring this up in the first episode, but there's a scene in Being the Ricardos where Lucille Ball, who's the movie's about, is so obsessed with getting a scene correctly, she's always like, how do I make this scene better? Where did I do wrong? Where did I not get this laugh correctly? Which he does the exact same thing in the pilot of Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip with Sarah Paulson, who plays the main cast member, pretty much. Aaron Aaron Sorkin just sort of went back into his own well for that. Yeah, he's resorkling. <laughs> nice. But yeah, that movie got three acting nominations. So I'm sure a lot of actors probably want to at least get a obligatory Oscar nom under their belt and work yeah. with him. Simon Pegg probably would. but. Sure. One thing I want to note, I just looked it up. In 2006, Simon Pegg was starring in a movie with our very own David Schwimmer. Oh! His post-Friends attempts at movie making. What movie were they in together? It's a movie I have never heard of called Big Nothing. <laughs> Sounds like what it did at the box office. Yeah, at the box office it made, I doesn't even say because... It probably didn't get released in the United States that much. Yeah, it really. It shows its UK gross. It doesn't even show its United States gross, which means yeah. he's probably um, the cast uh, list for characters is, is very interesting for this movie. There's Mrs. Smalls, eighty year old man, Melanie number one, Melanie number two, Reverend Smalls, and Snuff movie victim. 
Well, when we get through all of Matthew Perry's career and we start on a different Friends character uh, or a different Friends actor's career, I look forward to watching Big Nothing. So we're doing uh, David Schwimmer fourth, so it will be several years before we get there. Yeah, but keep listening until then. It's definitely (laughs) for all you Big Nothing heads out there. Okay, so one more thing I want to mention about the scene before we move on is what you were referencing earlier, which is that Amanda Peet's character, Jordan, is very obsessed with the fact that no one seemed to like a certain sketch in the show, which was, I guess, like a Commedia dell'art sketch. She keeps saying Commedia dell'art the entire time. And when I first watched that episode, I had no idea what the hell she was talking about. And I'm assuming neither did the people in the focus group. But I guess it's like, you know, an Italian form of comedy that existed in like the 16th century to the 18th century, which... She corrects Jack. She says, no, it's not 16th century. It's 17th century. I looked it up. It's in both centuries. So she's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Also, did you look up what it is? Because I was just like, uh, I I was too annoyed by the joke to bother looking into what it meant. It's basically what Italians did for comedy when they were doing plays. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No wonder only two people in the focus group got it. Weird to me that they want to focus so much in on this because first off, who the fuck even knows what Commedia dell'arte is? It's not yeah. even something that the average NBC watcher will know. So who will watch this show that Aaron Sorkin made and get this immediately? I mean, and that's a reoccurring thing throughout this episode and throughout the series too. These network comedy writers are writing sketches without mass appeal on purpose. And it's fucking why? Other than like, oh, well, we want to write for a smart audience. It doesn't have them come off smart or like, oh, we're writing highbrow comedy. It only makes them sound like assholes it doesn't win anyone over and then it's bad for the bottom line like makes no sense that everyone involved wants to write comedy that doesn't make people laugh seems like a huge misfire on this show which if this was real life the show would last probably one year and then just get canceled immediately but it's like it's supposed to be this like legacy show that is the deciders of what's cool and what isn't and that is displayed in like uh well no one's gonna get this <laughs> and it's like why would you write it then i'm sure in the hands of like a different writer having a sketch writer write like deliberately obscure sketches could come off in like a charming or like interesting way but in the hands of sorkin and crew it's just like you, it just it just makes everyone sound like a dick a lot of the comedy they do on the show is mean and a lot of the times they try to show the more slapstick elements of the show they just come off really awful yeah in this episode in particular they show a few sketches that are not as highbrow and those sketches just look completely terrible they look like Matt TV would have rejected them on first draft yeah for sure so speaking of the sketches the next scene we see is a scene where we actually see them do a table read of a sketch which is I thought a very fun choice I kind of wanted more sketches to be shown in the show I appreciate the fact that they went through a long scene where they actually showed us them making a sketch a couple edits that Matt is making as like the head writer it was a very fun choice to have that even if the sketch itself was dog shit yeah wait real quick does the the DUI reveal does it happen after the sketch table read or before it happens during oh like, during they cut okay. back to scenes they have a scene where like they show the dui reveal they cut to the sketch they just kind of cut between them a little bit during the sketch i believe okay so so let's let's talk about that real quick and then let's talk about the sketch only because i brought it up and so now i feel like i have to address it um so Chekhov's gun um steven weber and uh amanda pete are talking to each other and jack and jordan one of the reveals in the focus group is that there was a question asked whether Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip was patriotic or not, which biggest eye roll of the night for me was this plot line. Yes. And it's 50-50 split, right down party line. You know, we can get into the fact that there is actually a majority more Democrats in the United States. It's just more about voter suppression and things like that. Can we also talk real quick about how they're in L.A.? (laughs) They would not be a 50-50 split anyway, because L.A. is inherently more democratic <laughs> famously uh like snapshot of america los angeles california just so fucking obnoxious the most fucking bush era thing of all time uh jordan asks um steven weber you know jack since when did this matter you know and uh do you want to do you want to say what jack says <laughs> since the first plane made a left turn and gunned its engines into the north tower kitten <laughs> 
Oh, oh my god. I stood up after that. I was just like, yes, hell yeah. Calling her kitten, not just saying 9-11, but having to be like too clever by half. It's just mwah, the Sorkiniest Sorkinism to ever Sorkin. Watching the scene for the first time, Amanda Pete's reaction for the rest of the scene almost looks kind of troubled and sort of taken aback. And I assume that was because of him saying this, but you know, Amanda Pete's character Jordan actually was reacting to something else that Jack was not talking to her about. Behind Jack, a TV is on and there's news. Jordan is seeing her own mugshot on the TV because her ex-husband has been leaking information. He's he's shopping a book about his time married to Jordan. And one of the things he leaks is that she got pulled over for a uh, DUI uh, eight years ago. I know this kind of sounds fucked up probably, but part of me wanted the DUI DUI to be a bigger deal than it actually ended up being. Like in terms of, because the way she describes DUI, she's trying to be like, everyone remember, I'm the goody two shoes of the show. I went to go ask a cop for directions or something. Like she kind of, she then backtracks a little bit later saying, I was partying. I definitely had some drinks. Yeah. But I was kind of like disturbingly hoping that her DUI was actually like a legitimate plot point that would matter instead of just being oh, her husband's leaking stuff about her. No, I, I agree completely because like it's undercut by the fact that it wasn't actually a DUI. All she had to do was take a class and it was expunged from her record. She didn't actually get in trouble at all. So why even bring this up? And it's, it's sort of a way to shoehorn in her ex-husband, which... Again, this show keeps dropping, like, dangling carrots of, like, oh, this is going to be important later. And it's only the third episode, so, you know, there hasn't been any payoff. But at this point, it's been nothing but carrots, you know? There's just been so many, like, oh, this is going to come back later, where it's, it's like, I don't care. Pick, like, five plots and then just follow those through instead of doing five an episode that might show up at a different point, you know? Network TV shows back in the day, and probably still now, I wish I knew, but I don't watch Network TV anymore. They would always dangle these plots, especially in serialized TV shows, and then they'd either drop them later or they'd have a quick one-off reveal about something, which isn't really good writing, and I'm no. sure the show's going to do the same thing. I guess we'll find out. Uh, one other thing I want to mention about this scene is the DUI picture comes up on a show called Access Tonight, which to me sounds like kind of like, you know, Access Hollywood, Entertainment yeah. Tonight. Like a kind of a, you know, a step above TMZ, but basically entertainment gossip, right? Right. Underneath the um the like the crawler for like the news that's going underneath this it says karachi police hold six suspects in nightclub bombing (laughs) (laughs) that made no sense to me that that would be below like that would be a crawler under new head of entertainment at mbs had a dui eight years ago yeah i mean you wouldn't think that it'd be on like an entertainment you know that's like more of like a cnn crawler than like access hollywood yeah like i don't think mario lopez is reporting on ukraine and russia conflict right now no (laughs) so meanwhile uh you know during that scene there's the sketch that they're working on with Rob Reiner as the host of this week's episode of Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, which is crazy. It's just very funny, especially like, so at, at the end of the episode, there's like a reveal about how their ratings did. And you're just like, yeah, Rob Reiner didn't bring in those numbers. I'm calling bullshit on this. Yeah, because usually SNL, when they have a big ratings boost, it's because somebody who's either very controversial or very public is on the show. Like I think Kim Kardashian brought in some of the best ratings on snl recently yeah yeah so usually it's either that or it's somebody who's a i think bill Hader brought in pretty good writing someone who like snl people know and like oh i want to watch this person do a hosting episode of the show rob reiner is a weird choice and i actually know this is an episode two like they show like the markings like they have like the marquee of like the episodes and yeah. they were they have like mark Wahlberg uh is hosting episode two which he did with uh the white stripes musical guest and then they had like the episode three uh, marquee right next to it while they were walking into the building and it said Rob Reiner with Gwen Stefani. And I remember thinking, are you fucking kidding me? Why would Rob Reiner host the show? He must be making a cameo or else that makes no sense. So I was very happy when we this episode turned on and I saw him make a cameo in the episode. Even in 2006, like Rob Reiner is still like sort of irrelevant. 
Though on IMDb's trivia, this episode's show within a show guest host, Rob Reiner, directed A Few Good Men and The American President, two of Aaron Sorkin's first three screenplays, the third being Malice, co-written by Scott Frank, which Reiner produced but did not direct, while Sorkin was under contract to Castle Rock, Reiner's production company. So that's why he was on. It's because they have a personal relationship. That makes way more sense. Because, I mean, Rob Reiner, respected actor, arguably more more respected director, because he did This Is Final Tap, Stand by Me, The Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, Misery. Like he had a very yeah. good directing career, like pretty much just hit after hit. And then around this time, he actually kind of his career took a bit of a dive. Uh, like his only 2006 credited role was a um, animated movie about a baseball player, which I had never heard of in my life. And so by default, I'd have to assume that he's technically here to promote the. 2005 Jennifer Aniston movie rumor has it because <laughs> there's nothing else that he has that recently did anything and even that movie did not actually um do that well mostly because the plot of that movie is ridiculously insane I don't know if you know that movie that well oh I'm not familiar at all no this movie is a very weird plot the plot of the movie is that a woman learns that her mother and grandmother are the inspiration for the 1963 novel The Graduate <laughs> Like, you know, the novel that then is becomes the movie, The Graduate. So basically, yeah, yeah. it's like a weird movie about someone realizing that their family is was adapted into a book, pretty much, which is silly as shit. But it's really funny to me that that's pretty much why he was here. And then was it a comedy? Yeah, it was a romantic comedy. Okay. Uh, Jennifer Aniston and Kevin Costner were the two leads. I forget if Kevin Costner, I don't think was I think he was her father, probably. I, I think Mark Ruffalo was her love interest. I haven't seen this movie in like years or whatever. Yeah, that's not like a great premise of a movie though. It's a weird premise, but it has a really good cast, yeah. uh, which makes it even weirder. Um, and the other movie that he actually made uh, a couple like a year after his guest appearance on Studio City on Sunset Strip is The Bucket List, uh, <laughs> that 2007 movie with uh, Morgan Freeman and Jack Nicholson, where they're just doing a bunch of stuff before they kick the bucket. Which yeah. I did not realize that is considered to be one of the inspirations for the term bucket list. Really? Like, it's not the other way around. That movie is one of the first times that the term bucket list was used as an expression. That's that's fucking crazy. I assume that the expression had existed because, like, kick the bucket. They say it so casually in the movie that it's like, yeah, you know what this means. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it, you know? Kick, yes, and kicking the bucket is an expression that's been used, but... Bucket list is a newer one for sure. It seems like most references to it are more recent. I think there's a couple references before this movie came out to it in like literature that I was able to find, but there's like from 2004 and it seems like it's one of those things where either it wasn't, it might not have actually specifically came from this movie, but this movie popularized it. That's weird. You don't think of expressions as things that happen in your lifetime, you know? It's even weirder because this movie is, I feel like it was not a well-received movie at all. Like I, I seem to recall people really did not like it. So it's very interesting that this movie basically created a expression. I don't know. So it has, it has a 7.4 out of 10 rate on imdb um has a 41 percent ron tomato score i remember liking it but i also was like 13 when it came out so i've never actually seen it it's one of those movies where the trailer gives away the entire movie so i just watched yeah. the trailer and was like i know what happens it's fine it's one of those movies where you watch it with your parents because you know i can't speak for you here but i feel like the sort of bottom feeder pg movie is like the only thing that my entire family can watch together because i like some weird stuff but everyone else in my family is just like i just want to watch something nice i want to watch a movie about people who get along so it's like okay i guess we got to watch the bucket list then yeah that wasn't really my experience uh growing up most of my most of the movies my family watched for like uh new york early 2000s indie dramas made on a million dollar budget probably <laughs> Uh, Woody Allen? Not Woody Allen. <laughs> All right. Well, moving on. <laughs> uh, this sketch sucks. The one the that it's like there it's like sort of like dress rehearsal or no or table read. I mean, it's pretty bad sketch. Very poorly written, clearly. But I mean, it's a Monday. Like they make it clear it's Monday, so it's like the table read. But they don't improve it that much. The only thing they seem to improve is that 
They realize that uh, Liberty College in Virginia does not have Bible in it. So they have someone research to make sure to find a college that has the word Bible in it. Yeah, she ends up just going to Bible College, which is actually a worse joke than saying Liberty University. Which, so real quick, the premise of the sketch is it's like science schmience is what it's called. And it's a game show with like a acidic Jew, um, a Muslim, someone at, at Liberty University in Virginia. Virginia, which is like a conservative Christian college. Uh, Tom Cruise, because he's a Scientologist. There's definitely another person. I forget what they do. Um, it's one of those. I forget what their joke is for the last person. Five people in a sketch is way too many. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Because most SNL game show sketches only have three people on them, which is better for not going overboard with the jokes. Well, yeah, I mean, and that way it follows the rule of threes of comedy, you know? Two people give normal answers, and then the third person does something funny. Where this one, the funny thing is that everyone is like, oh, isn't religion hilarious? Like, and, you know, it just doesn't make sense sense and it's very very bad they definitely watched celebrity jeopardy and just wanted to make a religious version of it and it feels like it's like a bill nye the science guy sketch yeah 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 yeah. it reminds me of those kind of sketches they'd have in between him teaching people about science in the show they would never go down the religious angle clearly but they'd probably have something similar to this in terms of people not knowing about science and it being funny that they don't know something about science. But yeah, no, awful, awful sketch. Very, very bad. I was just happy to see a sketch on here, but this one was not great. And the funnier thing to me is they wanted the audience to actually participate in the sketch. And then the audience says, science, science. Nate Cordry plays the host of the, uh, like on the sketch of like the game show they're doing. And the worst part is he's also in on the whole thing. Like he's like, he, they don't make it clear what his role is, but he's actually part of the group of people who's like, yeah, no, I mean, like, you're right. Religion and Trump science, pretty much. Because the, the joke is that everyone doesn't believe scientific facts. There's no, and he's there's like, no, yep, like, straight man to kind of react to these things. You know, it's it's overcrowded. There's no real strong premise. I mean, you don't see the whole sketch, but you know they don't have an ending to it. There's just no way. This sketch would work as, like, a 30 Rock sketch, where the joke is, man, look how much this sketch sucks. And, like, the problem isn't that the sketch is bad. The problem is that the show has told viewers a thousand times in just the first two episodes and the first 10 minutes of this episode that this show is highbrow and smart and intelligent and everyone who watches it is smarter because of it and then they're like see look at the sketch that this very smart comedy does and it it just sucks it's bad it's so shitty it's awful it's a terrible sketch and simon helberg as tom cruise is uh a very i mean clearly they want him to be somewhat bad but they don't really make it clear that simon helberg is the the bad cast member at this point yet which uh this is actually my 30 rock take that i was uh saving for this episode that i previously mentioned in the second episode which is that simon helberg is clearly meant to be the josh of this show oh yeah like josh and 30 rock was in like the first two or three seasons he's clearly the cast member no one gives a shit about and that's kind of like the joke but he does like impressions, He, but they're bad impressions or they're supposed to be bad. And in this show, Simon Helberg does bad impressions as well. And that's kind of his joke. So it's very interesting that both shows kind of had the same parallel thinking for that. Speaking of like, you know, this bad jokes and it not it not working is in in the next scene you know they're they're talking about the what is essentially the weekend update of the the week uh it's called news 60 i think and they're talking specifically about this town that's banning banning the crucible yeah the crucible and so they're they're writing jokes about what other plays could they have banned and unbelievable how unfunny this joke is and then they're all like high-fiving afterwards being like ah ha ha and so like the joke is essentially like that they're gonna ban a stage adaptation of a porno like astroglide asses is what the joke is and then all the cast members like laugh and high-five i keep coming back to this but it's just like what the fuck who is this for this is not and you know the the point of this is that they decide not to do the joke because it's like punching down on this small town which fine but also the joke sucks so who cares i actually really like the scene where sarah paulson uh like uh, speaks to matt about this like how she says that we're punching down on this town 
is it's a kind of actually one of my favorite Matt jokes of the episode where I think like she basically says like it's like a town that like makes textiles or something. Uh, so she like explains to him like why she doesn't want to do the joke. And then when Matt goes and talks to Danny and Danny's like, why are we taking out like the best joke? Matt's like, well, they, they, they make textiles in their town or something. And then just like walks yeah. away. And it's like, that's all he took from the conversation, which that was kind of funny. I kind of I thought that was actually one of the more nuanced scenes of the episode about comedy. Punching up in comedy is usually funnier because punching down is just being mean to something. And I kind of thought she had a good point in that about how a very small town, no one in this town even watched this episode. They all were raised to be ignorant. It's an interesting nuanced take that the show doesn't usually have. I don't disagree, but but the whole thing hinges on it being that the like the Astroglide asses joke is funnier than when asked for a comment, the bear said rar. I'm sorry, that's just a funnier joke because it's a joke. Just being like, oh, this school also banned a porn is like that's not a joke i i agree that it's like a nuanced take about comedy it's it's not bad when it talks about like what comedy means and like the broader abstract but it isn't funny when it just tries to do comedy which kind of weakens all of the arguments it's making about what it means to do comedy you know because what it means to do comedy first and foremost is be funny and then everything else is after the fact and it's focusing on the after the fact and can't write a joke to save its life yes aaron sorkin should have hired some sort of sketch writer to come in and help him with the show because whatever is happening is not working in terms of the actual sketches so speaking of the writers because they're the ones talking to bl hugley's character simon about how he's going to be taking over weekend update weekend update i mean news 60 i would you want to note one thing real quick that they say he's the first black anchor on the show yeah but (laughs) at this point i don't think weekend update had a black anchor ever right like i think michael che was the first black anchor that's crazy so uh a fake sketch show beat them to the punch yeah i'm having a black anchor yeah by like a lot pretty weird that this show kind of beats them to that not that weird that a fictional show beat snl to being progressive but it is weird that like i don't know that they made a point of it i guess yeah maybe that's more what i'm saying also in a show that's made by aaron sorkin and aaron sorkin shows are usually uh you know yeah, um, yeah, yeah i i feel like that's kind of more of my point of like oh that's actually interesting that they would do this yeah for sure it's also this kind of is the first time we really see evan handler's character one of the writers uh ricky or ronnie i forget which one yeah the, the whole thing is you're not really supposed to know which is which yeah one of them gets a plot and the other one looks a lot like peter krause from sports night and parenthood to me at least he's not but he looks so much like him that i can't get out of my head whenever he's on screen see that's funny because i made a point of saying that the the other guy looks a lot like nate cordry if nate cordry was bald and i'm like why would they cast people who look kind of similar like in the in the first episode i literally thought i was like that's weird that nate cordry's playing two characters and one he just wears a bald cap and a fat suit and then i was like nope that's just what that guy looks like they should have had nate cord to be the rachel drash of the show <laughs> where he's just in every episode in like a weird different role yeah uh that's been fun so actually speaking of nate cordry being in the show in weird places one of the extras in the focus group scene looked like nate cordry too maybe he's just a guy who looks like that you know? i think he is and the guy the guy in the focus group scene had a shirt on that said chiefs basketball team <laughs> Which is, I don't know any Chiefs basketball team. I'm assuming it's supposed to be like a local high school. I mean, it's supposed to like kind of be a generic high school team reference or something. Because I just saw that and was immediately thrown off. Because I'm like, well, are they referring to the Chiefs like the NFL Chiefs? Because it says nothing. Oh, man. Are you ready for this? Okay. Chiefs, a 2002 documentary about the on and off court struggles of Native American basketball players at uh, yeah Wyoming Indian High School. So that's what it's a reference to. I so guess. did Nate Cordry go there? I don't think so, because he's white. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe it was like one of those things where they just have the extras wear their normal street clothes. And he's like, oh, I'm going to rep my high school here. My Wyoming high school. That sounds like an interesting documentary, though. I might have to check that out. So Evan Handler's character is kind of around this episode. He's no offense to the other guy, but Evan Handler, who plays the bald guy, He's the one who gets like the screen time, which I'm assuming is because he's like he's the Sex in the City guy. Yeah, his character goes around basically just kind of talks to Matt and Danny the whole time about how he wants more writing. He doesn't like how he's not writing the Weekend Update feature anymore, and he's annoyed by that. That's kind of a side plot, one of the many side plots this episode has. Yeah, that is not really resolved per se, but it's really funny to me to think that Matthew Perry, based on all that we're hearing about these other writers, he basically writes every fucking sketch 
mustache on this show by himself. And that's the whole thing is like he's going to burn out, but he's the only one writing the sketches. And everyone's like worried that he's going to burn out or like turn to drugs or something or the the show's going to implode because he's like very controlling and he's the only one that's funny. And again, this would work more if the show was funny, but it's so funny for lack of a better word that it's like, oh my God, he's this control freak who's writing 90 minutes of these amazing sketches. And then they show you the sketches and you're like, these are very bad. (laughs) Yes. And to kind of tie his plot together with uh, the writing plot, the two writers come show him the focus group stuff, reveal the patriotic divide. He and Danny talk about that. Danny calls him out and says, you don't really have any political sketches on this week. So clearly you lost your touch. He goes off and says you're a pussycat and then kind of shorens it a bit to, I guess, get through like network sensors or something. Yeah, he calls him a boy pussy or a pussy boy a lot. And yeah, in my note, I just wrote the pussycat thing is real rough. Because uh, they just keep saying, like, pussy boy or pussy girl or pussy cat. And you're like, we get it. And it's one of those things where when you're watching a show that's this old, you kind of forget that network standards are different than they are now. Because I think you could just call someone a pussy on network TV now. Probably. Um you couldn't do it as often as they do in this show because he does it like eight times in rapid succession but you could you could drop a like you're being a pussy like once on a network comedy with like a ma rating or stuff yeah and like a a cat walks by while you say so that way it's like it's like how you can't say fuck in like a pg-13 movie unless it's not about sex yeah 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 yeah. Uh, but it, it just it, it's just another one of these things that like really pulled me out of the episode I'm like made me audibly groan it, it was just so annoying and I hated it <laughs> yes so did that so like he talks about how Matthew Perry has the only the only political sketch he has this week is like a 10 to 1 sketch which is like the last sketch before the show ends which usually is the one that people just have either the weird sketch for at least in SNL standards or sometimes like the sketch that they just want to kind of burn off at the end because SNL never has a political sketches they're 10 to 1 it's usually just either what is Kyle Mooney doing right now or some weird commercial that they want to get through it's never a sketch about Donald Rumsfeld which is what this sketch would have been about (laughs) supposedly I would never see a Donald Rumsfeld sketch as the 10 to 1 on Saturday Night Live that's ridiculous just on its face we mentioned like a little bit earlier about how many plots were on and so I wanted to do a rundown real quick because I wrote them all down and I realized we haven't even talked about a couple of them so DUI power outage which we didn't talk about another thing that's going on in this episode is the power just randomly keeps cutting out and they they play it uh, sort of for laughs is like the power goes out every time they like make fun of christians or something like that and the power comes back on um every time what is her name sarah paulson yeah every time sarah paulson like says something nice or redemptiony it's a silly plot it's completely forgettable it doesn't affect anything in the show at all that's two sketch that uh flatlined uh which we talked about in the beginning uh first black news anchor we talked about the retention goals everyone the whole time is freaking out about making sure the numbers are good this friday uh small town punching down um which we talked about oh and then the the ex-boyfriend which we haven't talked about yet or he's in is he the ex-boyfriend or the ex-husband not important jordan's ex would take her to sex clubs and oh, yeah it's sort of weirdly mentioned and doesn't come up again but it's one of those things where it's like oh he has this dirt on her uh that he like dragged her to sex clubs she didn't want to go to which is not really the dirt he thinks it is <laughs> he's gonna clearly spin it i guess but it's still very yeah. weird and then the other thing which i'm getting a little ahead of myself but i thought that this was so weird and worth mentioning it up the blonde girl at the after party okay so um <laughs> i i know who that actress is because she's in like a lot of stuff nowadays marcia monroe uh who is famously in the television show episodes with matt leblanc nice as one of the main characters so i saw her name come up on the credits uh at the beginning because they have the guest starring list at the beginning and i was like yeah oh no what she's gonna do that'll be interesting to see her in this and then her entire role is hey i snuck into this party i think you're funny let's hook up or whatever to deal hugley D.L. Hoogley's like, no, I'm good. And then at the very end, he introduces her to Nate Cordry, who is like, thanks, bro. No, not not Nate Cordry. He introduces her to... Um... Simon Helber? Yeah. For some reason I thought it was Nate Cordry. Oh, yeah, I guess Simon Helber makes more sense. Yeah. Okay, no, maybe Simon that Hubbard. just reveals that Nate Cordry and Simon Helber look exactly the same to me. Yes. <laughs> well, that's the thing about the show is like all the kind of like everyone who isn't, um, you know, Danny or Matt or Jack, like all the like white guys in like the cast and writing staff all kind of just looked at and extras all just 
just kind of look the same. If they ever give more plots to the writers, I'm going to be so confused because they all look exactly the same to me. Yeah. It's yeah. going to be really Which annoying. Like a deliberate casting decision since the whole thing is that Matt Albee writes all the episodes himself. I wonder if it is because if it's not, then it's still kind of very annoying. Yeah. <laughs> Either way, it does seem like a very weird choice to uh, have a bunch of these plots in this episode because they clearly just, I guess, wanted each character to do something to kind of expand the ensemble and make them all seem worth it because a lot of times you only get like two or three plots and some of the ensembles kind of just doing nothing so this episode they wanted to make the ensemble seem like very big because they even give they give a plot to genie uh who plays one of the other cast members which is that she is mad that one of the sketches did not do well in the focus group the one about the committee adele art which she i guess wrote apparently she helped write it at least which also seems like a weird but she's kind of concerned that that sketch didn't do well she's annoyed she doesn't want to do another sketch like it this week which i guess they're doing which is weird that they would have recurring sketches show up twice in a row yeah i don't really understand why a show would do that i will say one of the funnier things to me uh was when she was talking about this with matt and danny and danny also i guess uh says something wrong about how whatever Commedia del Arts origin is. So Matt tells her, he's like, if you if this sketch does not do better in the focus group this week, then I'll give you $10,000. But if it does do better, you have to wear a shirt that says, Matt is my hero and Danny thinks Moliere was Italian. <laughs> Which, imagine wearing that anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> All these plots kind of lead up to Friday night. The, the episode airs. You There's like a quick montage of every sketch and each one is worse than the last. The The one that I really remember, the Nick Cage show. Like Once again, he's doing like a really bad impression that you can't tell if it's bad on purpose or just bad andy sandberg's impression of nicholas cage on saturday night live is supposed to kind of be over the top and dumb and i think it's kind of funny because everyone's reacting to it to have a sketch that just hinges on simon helberg doing nicholas cage impression the whole time just sounds awful the the best part is the montage so there's like you know like two second clips of each sketch and insane cheering clapping and laughter in the background yes which just un- unbelievable how much sound production went into really trying to convince you that this is a good show that everyone's enjoying that was the part that me off the most on this episode because it just seems so weird in the editing to have sketches and have dl hughley doing a pimp my ride parody of pimp my trike oh my god that's audience applause happen the entire time that that's going on and Simon Helberg's doing his Nicolas Cage and like the dumb sketch about like the science schmines. All of that is just so annoying to have audience applause over the entire time. It makes right. no sense to me. Yeah, like Pimp My Trike would have been hack in twenty in 2006. But today it's it's almost like beside itself bad. Cannot comprehend the idea of being like, oh, look, we're going to show that this is a very funny show. Yeah. And so the sketches were pretty bad. It's weird that this is the episode that supposedly gets some a good retention rate which at the same time it is also not the episode's quality that would get them a retention rate it's like the word of mouth that would you can't decide to watch an episode halfway through because of how good it's supposed to be yeah so like there's a big reveal in the later scene because in the previous episode when they had the whole christian scandal this like little town in little rock was getting a bunch of calls like asking them to take the show off the air so jack comes in and talks to jordan he's like remember that station i told you about that was getting a bunch of calls uh they, they had to get a new phone line and jordan's like yeah they're getting more calls about this episode he's like yeah they're getting calls that the episode's not on the air and they want it to be it's like wow but who the fucking little rock is twitter doesn't even exist at this point like twitter would be the only thing i can think of where it's like somebody sees you got to watch this right now on this show and everyone tunes in but in 2006 no one is telling someone to tune in to a sketch show on a friday night and then calling their station to get it on the air if you haven't seen the episode i can't emphasize enough just how much this show focuses on like this is the show this is the cornerstone of all culture in the united states and we are the most this is the thing everyone's talking about watching getting mad about this is in the news this is the end-all be-all for culture in 2006 within the world of this show i just don't buy it no absolutely not they even have, they also have a sketch that's about 10 years too late where uh nate torrance one of the other cast members who later stars with matthew perry and mr sunshine well there you go he is placed basically playing an exaggerated chris farley-esque character in like a golf sketch with simon helberg that was the only clip that i saw that i was like i could see this being like an snl sketch not a good one but i this would have at least made saturday night live yes it definitely feels like it could have at least uh it was the only time we really saw nate torrance do anything 
the whole montage of the sketch, I was kind of enjoying that we got it, but I didn't like any of the sketches. After after the montage of the sketches, you know, it's the after party. The the ratings come in and it's revealed that they got uh, 109% of last week, which is their best show in 14 years. It just doesn't make any sense. The the other thing I have in my notes that I just wanted to, it's like, it's like a side comment, but I just thought it was really, really funny that Matt Albee got in trouble four years ago because he defended Bill Maher. I was hoping you'd bring it up because I totally forgot to, but I wanted to bring that up as well. That was so funny to me that that was like the thing that got him in trouble. And part of me, because I know that Bill Maher got canceled for his politically incorrect show because of um, the comments he made about like 9-11 or something. Yeah. But part of me really was, in my mind, I wanted it to be that Matt Albee defended Bill Maher when he had that talk with, like there's like this clip that went viral a few years ago, Bill Maher, where he's talking to like Henry Rollins and Henry Rollins is talking about how teachers shouldn't have sex with students and Bill Maher is like, come on. <laughs> part of me was really hoping that that was their, like that they could leave it because they brought, they brought the 9-11 stuff. I was really hoping they would just leave it like ambiguous as to what the clip was so i could just in my mind think that was the clip because <laughs> that'd been funnier to me yeah <laughs> it's just it, it really shows what um like aaron sorkin thinks comedy is by being like oh matt alby was being so brave to like defend bill maher especially through like a modern lens it's like no everything all this is awful and everyone hates this guy now and rightfully so and so like it really paints the picture of what type of person matt alby would be which would be a guy like you and i would fucking hate and we would hate his shows and we would hate his work um because i like i like matthew Perry and I kind of like Matt Albee as a character but just knowing how awful his work is just doesn't it again it is this thing where like what the show is telling you versus what it's showing you do not overlap at all he needs to tone down the gay jokes a bit though for me to like him more probably oh yeah yeah because yeah. right now I've, I'm doing a uh, ratio in my head of how many gay jokes per episode there are currently we're still at a one-to-one ratio because this week they had a gay joke when Matthew Perry uh, finds out that Danny was the one that put the question in about the is a show patriotic so he runs over immediately because matt's entire character on the show is to do rash things by running off and doing something yeah he loves to run he loves running so he runs off finds danny on a beach which they didn't really ever show the beach before that scene so it seems like a waste of having the after party be on a beach because the other parts of the after party are in the hotel or just like in a back like courtyard so that seemed very odd to me he runs on the beach tackles danny and they have like a very like minor struggle about how they're yelling at each other and then Matt says, can we like make it look like we're fighting more? Because I don't want people to think that we're doing anything homoerotic here. Yeah. And it was like, okay, dude, come on. That also sucks. Yeah, it's it's a little of its era, but it, it's also just very hack. Just a lot of this episode is pretty hack. I sort of liked the montage at the end because that was a big thing that dramas used to do back in the late 2000s was have a big montage to wrap up every plot. Like that's like a very Desperate Housewives. It, it felt like a series finale the way the montage like it's like oh look some of these things are getting resolved that blonde lady from earlier is gonna gonna sleep with the white dude you know like it it was it was just very odd to me i guess i don't really remember a lot of dramas from that era i don't remember this montage being a thing is more what i'm saying and so i was like oh it really feels like they're trying to wrap up the whole show here you know i think this is where our uh tv interests maybe uh differentiate from each other just a little bit because a lot of my tv watching back in this era was the sort of dumb overly dramatic tv shows that had montages at the end to reveal to wrap up every plot and i think even lost did this a lot like brothers and sisters all those kinds of shows would have these sort of ending montage when shows that had massive ensembles that were dramatic would have ending montages to be like we're i'm glad we're good now or whatever or something else and then there'd be like a big cliffhanger at the end of the last montage so i know back when i was a kid when i watched this for housewives i'd always keep track of which characters were being revealed in the montage i could be like oh who's getting the cliffhanger this week at the very end of the episode and it would always be fun to find out who it was was there there wasn't a cliffhanger at the end of this one though right i guess the cliffhanger is just arguably that matt is not satisfied with the ratings being good because he believes that there's always going to be more work to be done in the show which seems to be kind of the ongoing plot of the season is that because he and danny are talking about the ratings and he's like there's nowhere to go but down mm-hmm. um and then he walks off gets in his car starts driving after a after party that goes to four in the morning which i have to assume he drank a lot at <laughs> <laughs> Uh, speaking of that, we didn't even talk about the scene with uh, 
uh, Danny when he's walking up to the after party and he sees a guy who's like, Danny, can I have your autograph? Which, by the way, who on earth knows what like the director of <laughs> the show looks like? like yeah. Come on. Uh, and so then he like reveals a newspaper that says you know, Danny arrested for cocaine or whatever. Or Danny, not even arrested, Danny, producer of Studio 60, had cocaine or something. To kind of bounce off of that, multiple times in this episode, Danny confronts Jordan about her DUI, which such a weird time to take the high road on this. Oh, well, all I did was coke. You got a bunch of people in trouble because you drove while drunk. It's like, I don't I don't think you really have a leg to stand on here. Oh, and the other thing is he's like, he's like, oh, so Jordan talks to them kind of in being like, you know, I'm not off limits. You know, this news broke that I had a DUI eight years ago. You can uh, make a joke about it. And I would I would love you to make a joke. And he's like, there's nothing funny about using cocaine or getting a DUI. And I'm like, what? No, both of those things are very funny. Yes, but at the same time, neither of these people are big enough names that this would make a good joke on a sketch show anyway. No, it's it's way too navel-gazy to work. You couldn't do it in a way that would be anything other than just like obnoxious but that's kind of this show's whole purview so it makes sense that it was a conversation they had so actually my favorite line of maybe the episode is during that scene when Jordan and Danny walk into Matt's office and Matt's like what's going on and Danny says Jordan wants us to make jokes about her and then Matt says your teeth are too big. Yeah, oh, yeah, that, that's good. There's, there, see, there's always like one joke in the episode that I'm like, this, this is a good joke. Like, and it's, it's normally a Matthew Perry delivered line where he's just doing like, you know, his sort of like sarcastic Matthew Perry thing. Where I'm like, if this was more what the show was, this would work as like a, oh, I believe him as a comedy writer. But everything else that happens about it just doesn't make sense. I think my biggest problem with the show is that if it was just Matthew Perry or Matt Albee was funny, then it would be like, yeah, no, he's like the funniest guy ever. But they focus way more on like, but he's the smartest guy ever. And that doesn't, it's it's harder to write so one as like a smart savvy political guy than it is to write someone who's just funny you know that's actually a good take because i think they should have had matt be the funny one and then danny be the smart one who yeah tones him down or at least kind of directs him so they could have it where okay these two need each other yeah instead this show never really shows aspects of them really needing each other besides convoluted plots right yeah like it, danny plays more of like the straight guy and matt albie is the wacky guy who you have to contain which i mean again that's kind of what 30 rock does right you know like tracy and jenna are these wacky characters who need tina and tina fey needs them or liz lemon i guess need and it works on that show and again everything it's gonna be hard to do this for 22 episodes of television without just constantly comparing it to 30 rock or repeating ourselves a little bit but it's just that show works because the whole thing is not a funny or important television show and this show doesn't work because they're saying this is the most important aspect of american culture and every single person is waiting for what we do which is so important yeah which is a key distinction between the two shows which reveals why one of them doesn't work and one of them does probably later on so you know going back to the bad sketches of the show i wanted to bring back a game we started last week where I give you a few sketches and you tell me which one of them is the fake one. So uh, I'm going to give you four sketches. Three of them are real and one of them is fake. Okay. Jamaican Meet Crazy, DGA Awards, Directors Guild Awards, When Harry Reid Met Sally Field, and Turtle Shop. It's It's got to be When Harry Reid Met Sally Field. Yes. <laughs> you know, you know, we we keep guessing them because we just keep writing a fake. Like I wrote a fake political one last week, too. That's the one we can always tell is the fake one, which is, again, weird because the show is supposed to be political um, and they never do a political sketch. No, they always just do like Christians are silly. Am I right? Yeah. Uh, which this episode's kind of about is how they don't do political sketches, but right. they end up not doing yeah. that many of them either anyway, I guess. And I really want to see that DGA award sketch because I'm so curious how they could make that a mainstream sketch with Rob Reiner at the DGA Awards. Because first off, there's no way he was fucking there for Rumor Has It. <laughs> 
<laughs> I do not believe that Rob Reiner would have been at the DGA Awards for that movie. I so that seems really odd to me to have a sketch about that. Also, they they reference uh, Happy Days in this uh, episode, and Rob Reiner used to be married to Penny Marshall, who is a uh, sister of Gary Marshall, the creator of Happy Days. So that seems a little bit maybe off limits <laughs> to mention that. <laughs> I did not know that. And it's just my Rob Reiner facts for you. <laughs> Uh, all right. You want to wrap this up? You want to give it a, okay. a rating out of 60 studios on the Sunset Strip? Yeah. So this episode is definitely the most divisive one so far for me, where I can't really tell if what I liked overwhelmed what I didn't like, because there are a lot of things I actually kind of liked about this episode, enough where I feel like I can forgive a lot of the just typical Aaron Sorkin mess, but not enough where I could give it a fantastic rating. So I'm going to give this a Studio 41 on the Sunset Strip. Wow. Strip. I'm giving it a a much lower rating. I'm giving it a Studio 30 on the Sunset Strip. I, I I decided to go right down the middle. I wanted to go even lower, honestly, but I was like, nope. There's going to be worse episodes that I I need to <laughs> I need to save stuff below the 50% line for later on. But yeah, I, I, there's just so many things about this episode I found frustrating and annoying. And I think it's almost worse that there's kernels of something there than it would have been if it was all just irredeemably bad. Yeah. So. For my rating, I think that the reason why I gave it such a higher rating than you is because this episode had a lot of moments that felt more fun and relaxed to me than the previous two did. Because especially the first episode is all plot heavy stuff that I don't really care about. Like the first episode's entire premise is just like, who are we going to get to be the new people that lead this the show? And then they just mad Danny. That's it. And the second episode is kind of just a retry of the pilot. So to me, this episode was the first one that kind of got to actually breathe on its own, try to move the characters around, see what they can do. It's clearly not a finalized version of what the show should be but at least it's trying to do something that the show could later hopefully do better if they set their mind yeah i guess i don't disagree it is it is still trying to find its footing um i i think your argument makes sense to me and i maybe could have been a little more generous but also it's not finding its footing at all like i i respect that it's trying to but it is really missing it's got all the main characters involved which i liked a lot of people get to do stuff in this episode that were either sidelined previously or just kind of not their own plot um so i appreciate that getting some backstory on some characters it just did a lot for me that i really enjoyed the episode to me even though this is arguably just because of so many plots the episode went by pretty fast to Mm -hmm. me just because there's just so much going on but it doesn't feel expedition heavy to me which also was nice because that's how the first episode felt so overall i i definitely enjoyed this episode more than episode two I'm, it'll be interesting to see if episode four goes down the path of just having every character doing their own thing or if they'll try and make a more streamlined episode. Yeah, I, I hope that they just start making episodes where it's like, OK, we're only going to focus on like these three characters instead of trying to give everyone a plot every week. Just break it up a little bit. But, uh, you know, either way, we'll see. Have you been watching anything good recently? Um, uh, Some like USA Network origin from the from the Blue Sky era, some psychs some monk. And, you know, let Matthew Perry be be like a procedural snarky guy who solves mysteries in a very low stakes 44 minute basic cable show like he would have been great on like a a psych or a monk or a white collar a royal pains or a covert affairs yeah he definitely been hyper parabo uh <laughs> I didn't say burn notice, but that one's a little. I don't think he would have worked in like a burn notice. It would have had to be one of the the more like airy, silly ones. Then um, like burn notice was a little too self serious. But I think he would have been like he would have been good as like like what about like a like a guy who like has to move to New Orleans and then he starts a private detective agency or something. That's screaming for a Matthew Perry role. I could totally see that. I think if he made, I think if he took a meeting with USA, he would have had a good show that lasted at least like four years there. Yeah, speaking of monk. This is a little bit off topic. Uh, technically, I did watch this in the past week. So I was looking up uh, People's Choice Awards just to, you know, because I look up random shit in my free time. <laughs> um, I think I had a good reason for it. I can't remember exactly why I was looking at People's Choice Awards, but I was looking up and like kind of seeing, I think specifically the shows that won like best new shows or like best new comedies. And 
I found that there was this show that won in the year 2000, the People's Choice Awards, uh, speaking of Monk, that was called Stark Raving Mad, which is a show that starred Tony Shalhoub and Neil Patrick Harris, where Tony Shalhoub is like a Stephen King-esque novelist who is obsessed with practical jokes, and Neil Patrick Harris plays his reluctant new editor who has OCD and a variety of other phobias and has to deal with him. Wow. I remember being like, oh, that's actually kind of a fun premise. So I watched the first episode on YouTube, and clearly it has like first episode problems for sure but honestly i kind of can see a future where tony shalhoub stars in that show for more than the one season it aired and maybe he goes like six years so he doesn't get the monk role so matthew perry gets it instead there you go yeah so recently i watched the uh uh bob odenkirk movie nobody oh which is on hbo max now um i watched that over the weekend is that good yeah i really liked it it's it gets a lot of comparisons to john wick because it has a lot of the same team behind it Mm -hmm. and it definitely has parts of john wick in it but it also has other parts in it that i was not expecting that i really enjoyed so i say it's definitely worth a watch i mean i could really see matthew perry playing the main role in this movie because bob odenkirk's character you know this isn't really a spoiler he's a seemingly unassuming guy who it's revealed later has a bunch of ex-military combat history yeah it definitely feels like matthew perry could have easily played like the unassuming father to like a suburban family who looks kind of unimposing but actually is this combat expert who it's kind of weird he never had like a action comedy phase you know he did the whole he did the whole nine yards and the whole 10 yards but he didn't do anything else like that and it just sort of seems like a no-brainer especially i think feel like now where those are really the only types of comedies that get made are action comedies and just seems like that he would have been good in that genre looking at the whole nine and the whole 10 yards his assistant in that move in those movies was amanda pete yeah yeah yeah, yeah. clearly they those two should have been like a comedy action duo the whole mm-hmm. like 2000s decade but instead they were not they decided to go do this show for a year instead <laughs> he's definitely the kind of guy who probably you know like how in every action movie there's like the main i mean i'm sure whole nine hours had a scene like this too i didn't i don't know if i haven't seen the movie in like years we will we will get to it eventually but like there's a whole like you know there's always like a character who is like what's going on here i don't know what's happening i'm like the comedic person and then they see the other character like kill somebody they go like did you just kill that guy and they like have like a shock look on their face and they're like whoa and they're like you okay sir kind of thing like i feel like matthew perry is perfect for that kind of role he he has great facial expressions and he the way he reacts to things he's uncomfortable about where he's just like what's going on like it would be great it would be great yes and it's not too late yeah i the thing i'm really starting to realize as i think about his career and as we go through this show is that matthew perry has just been misused a lot yes he's definitely been misused a lot of people seem to realize that he's sort of the snarky comedic lead but they don't know how to keep him up that way without also having him be the straight man which isn't really what he should be no no like if he's the lead in a show he should be like a weird character or like at least playing off other weird characters who are weird in different ways you know which he does a little bit and go on but it's not to the extent that he should been able i think he needs a cable show to do it correctly right network's not his cup of tea on that we almost made it through the entire episode without bringing up friends but i will make this comparison like there's a reason why I like chandler and uh lisa kudrow's or phoebe's you know, like why they don't have a lot of plots together because they're like kind of the two weird characters and they're like oh well we can't put the two weird characters in like a b storyline together because they can't play off each other you know he has to play off a, like a ross or something more it's, it's easier for him to play off someone where he can just make the funny jokes afterwards right so you can't have a funny joke and then a weird expression from phoebe after that because it yeah. doesn't really work to have too much comedy exactly so i think that about does it for episode three of studio 60 on the sunset strip yeah uh come back next week when we cover episode four of studio 60 on the sunset strip which is called the west coast delay Ooh. all right see you next week daniel bye brandon have a good one everybody bye bless you perry <laughs>